0: We're going to continue to worship the Lord through his word, and that's one of the beautiful things about what we believe about the Bible. It is living, it is active, that it is breathed out by God Almighty, and therefore, as we listen to it being read, it is as if God himself is talking to us. And so we're going to read, Um, but before I read Nehemiah chapter 5, I want to sort of I know that we have some visitors here, so we're working our way through Nehemiah. We'll finish it up by the end of the summer for Nehemiah chapter five. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the work, that this grand work of God's people rebuilding this wall around the city of Jerusalem. And the wrong way to look at that text is to maybe think that maybe we should be building walls. That is not how you exegete this text that they were doing something unique in their day to preserve the lineage of Christ. That when you later on, when we get in the book of Nehemiah, we're gonna see that one of the priests is the same guy who was in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew. And so they're fighting aggressively to preserve the coming of Christ. Once Jesus gets here, he says, put weapons down. He's crucified where? Outside of the wall, outside of the city. And the author of Hebrews says, let us go out to there where he is, that we may bear the reproach with him out there because we don't long for that city in Jerusalem. We long for the new city whose builder and maker is God. So they're working. They're working in chapters three and four. And then the work ceases for a second and it ceases because there is a famine in the land. And so I'm going to read uh, parts of Nehemiah chapter 5. Follow along with me in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we might eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses just to get grain, and that's right there, because of the famine. And there were those who said... We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And this is Nehemiah speaking. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself and I brought charges Against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, You are exacting interest, and each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, The thing that you are doing is not good ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunt of the nations of our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchids, and their houses and their percentages of money and grain and wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did exactly as they had promised. Let's pray. Our father, would you be our teacher? Would you speak through your servant? Your people are listening. Would you bind the evil one who would seek to cause confusion, who would seek to have our minds taken off of the word and onto the cares of this world? May you, Holy Spirit, go to war with us and for us that we might receive the implanted word of God by faith and therefore bear much fruit for your kingdom. I ask this for Christ's sake and for his name, amen. There are lessons in life that are hard to learn outside of suffering. It was John Calvin who said that nothing is more dangerous than being blinded by prosperity. And hear what he's saying, that when things are good, things are well, when we have surpluses, that it's typically a hard season to learn what it means to depend and to trust. And so I want to sort of add to what Calvin said that yes I get it that nothing is more dangerous than being blinded by plenty, but I would say that nothing is more profitable for our souls than to have needs and wants. There's something that God does in those seasons that are just hard that I actually think are for our good, and not just us as individuals. I think those seasons can be good for us as a community. This is a communal issue that's facing that these people are facing, and that issue is a famine. And you see it in verse three that that that, that this famine is at the center of this text, and we don't know a whole lot about it. We don't know how localized it was. We don't know um, uh, we don't know if it's a drought. We don't know if it was a bad yield, but they call it the famine as if anyone reading this passage would have known exactly what they were talking about. And so here they are in in chapter four. They're working and working and working with one hand and holding a spear in the other. That's the image. That's the way chapter four ends. And then you realize that they're doing all of this or there's a drought or famine in the land. And when we think about a famine, we typically think about what we don't have. We don't have food or we don't have enough water or we don't have enough crops or we don't have enough to feed our animals. And that's right. I think that's a part of what it means to be famished. It means to be in lack, to be in need. It means to have some things that you're doing without. But here's the case that I wanna make to you this morning is that what if we can look at famines differently not based on what we don't have, but maybe ask the question, what is God doing in them? What do we have in the midst of hard times? What things are clear in the midst of our hard times? What things can be ours in the midst of hard times? And I think this passage sort of starts to unpack some of that. And so I think the first thing we see in this passage, and and, and again, I, I think the famine It's like this first domino that's setting these other things uh, into movement. And I think if you remove the famine, then there are some things in this text that you don't see or there's... All right, yeah, I wanna leave it right there. The first thing I think about this famine, I think it's central to the text, I think it starts to reveal something about God. And I know that sounds really counterintuitive. How can the lack of what we need start to show me something about the character and heart of god and here is what i think it shows unequivocally that god loves the workers and not just the work that they're doing and this famine shows it now you, you now it, it, I, i'm unpack it right now when you think about famines they happen in this region all the time i mean if you go back and look at genesis Chapter 42 through 50, you remember that passage where there's a famine in the land and Joseph has been sold into Egypt and he is gone and several years pass by. And now Jacob is trying to get food for his boys and he sends them because of the famine down that you hear it when the book of Ruth opens up. There's a famine in the land all of a sudden when you start to look at the Old Testament, here's the case that I want to make to you is that. Yes, famines are real. And yes, famines are hard. And yes, famines, they, 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 they speak to doing without. But the case that I think we can make from the Bible is that yes, we do without, but there is an abundance of who God is that also comes out of the way that he uses the famines in the Bible. Y'all with me right there? All right, so... Think about when God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when he made the promise to him, your people will go into Egypt and you will be there 400 years, right? That's God's promise to Abraham. Well, how does God get them into Egypt? He sends them a famine. The famine takes the entirety of their family into Egypt and they camp out there for 400 years. God is doing something through famines. He's speaking abundantly about himself. He's revealing something about himself in them. And that's what you see in the text. I, th- I think that same thing is true here. Now, why would the Hebrew, Hebrew worldview, why would they assume that behind their lack that God is doing something? I think it, it's because of passages like Psalm 104, that all the creatures look to you, O oh God, for their food at their proper time. When you withhold your hand, O oh God, we cry out. In other words, in their mind, the person behind the governing of the earth is God almighty. And so it makes perfect sense that if God is choosing to withhold something, then God is up to something. He's up to showing his people something else about himself that they would not see if they had an excess. And so in the moment, like, like, look at how it feels. I mean, look at verse, look at, look at verse, uh, look at verse three that this famine has caused some, uh, uh, there's three groups of people and you see it, you can underline right there in verse two, for there were those who said, you see that right there, you see it at the beginning of verse three and there were those who said, and then you see it at the beginning of verse four, and there were those who say So three different times, what you're getting is the way this famine is affecting three different people groups inside the covenant community. And so for one group, look at what it says in verse three. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses just to get grain because of the famine. In other words, what they're ta- what they're doing is all of the land that they own that they are literally taking the deed to that land and they're giving it to another and they're telling the other person, will you buy this, give me fair market value for this piece of land, but I'm going to still work on it and I'm going to still live on it, but I cannot sell the deed to this land because you own it. It's like taking the title to your car to a pawn shop and you give them the title. You can still drive it, but you cannot get on eBay and sell that car because you don't own the title. That's what's happening. They have taken their deed, the, 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 the piece of paper, the, the bill of sale, and they've given it to someone else. They've sold it in order to get grain just to eat. Another group is saying, man, I've already done that. I, I, I need money to, to, to buy grain. I've done that once and now I need money. Another group is saying, well, hey, The king's taxes is coming in on top of the famine, on top of what I don't have. I have to pay the king's taxes. And so here's what I'm doing. I've already mortgaged my field. I've already mortgaged my vineyards. I've already sold my home. The only thing I have left is my children and I've already sold them. That's the situation they're in. In this moment, this is what life is like and it's not pretty and it's frightening. But there is something beautiful here. And here it is. You want to know what's not talked about at all in this section? The wall. Not one single time in the section that we're in does the wall even come up. And it has been a centerpiece of Nehemiah. Every single chapter has been dedicated to building, to getting there, to building, to building, to fighting. And all of a sudden, when this need, this great need surfaces in chapter five, guess what comes to the forefront? The needs of the people. And guess what recedes to the background? The wall. It's not even talked about. Matter of fact, when you read, look look at how it reads when you read the end of chapter 4. Look at verse 23. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor my men of my guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. So right there you're getting this image of they're working. They're working with one hand, a weapon in the other. Now go read down to verse chapter six, chapter six, verse one. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, all of a sudden what you see right here is chapter five. It's almost if you could take that completely out of here and this would read like one narrative, except Nehemiah puts this right here in the middle and does not talk about the wall at all. It recedes to the background. Nehemiah goes from sort of being this construction worker, this contractor, he sort of takes that hat off. The moment he hears about what they don't have, the moment he hears about what they're doing with their fields, the moment he hears about what's happening to their children, he takes this contractor hat off to build the wall, puts it to the side, and then he puts on two hats. One is a prosecuting attorney, and the other hat he puts on is a disaster response leader. He's like, we got to get to the bottom of this. Can you imagine? He does not say, get back to work. He does not say, what about this wall that we're working on? It recedes into the complete background as if to say exactly what God is saying. I don't just care about the work you're doing. I care about the status of the workers. Think about that. The whole book is about the wall and the one chapter when their needs surface, you don't hear about the wall. My wife and I watched Fences with Viola Davis and Denzel Washington. And if you've watched that movie, then, man, Denzel, I was actually waiting for the silver lining in the movie. (laughs) And one of our elders, I mean, he told me, he says, it's heavy. I'm like, man, should I go see? uh, Anyway. He said, it's heavy, he warned me up front. And so we're watching the movie and I'm just kind of waiting, okay, where's the turn? It's gonna turn, it's gonna get good. There's gonna be something good, right? And so there's this scene where Denzel has a son and the son wants to play football. And Denzel's kind of, he's just a, a gritty 1950s man, a man's man who just works. He works at a garbage truck company, And his whole worldview is wrapped up in work, work, work. And so his son comes to him and says, Dad, why don't you like me? And I'm thinking, and it pauses for a minute. I'm thinking he's about to say, son, I love you. And that is not what he says. (laughs) He says, like you. Who says I need to like you? I put the roof over your head. I put the food on your back. I mean, the food on your plate. I put the clothes on your back. Like you, I don't have to like you. I just need to work. And guess what? You you can't play football. You need to work. You need to go to school and go to your part-time job. And when you finish your part-time job, you come home and do your chores at home because men work. And I'm thinking like, gosh, like that was just harsh, right? But how often do we think that God is like that? That his love for us is tied to what we do. That I need to do more. I need to be more missional. I need to share my faith more. I need to to go do this more, that, that all of a sudden you get this more and more and more and more and more. It becomes really easy to attach the love of our father to the work we do for him. And what you see in this passage is God says, wait a minute, I care about the work. The work is important, but the workers, you're important. And if you don't have food and if you don't have land and if you don't have your children, I give you divine permission because I love you. To tend to those things that are important, that are needed. Can you imagine being a senior citizen, right? And you don't have the energy you used to have. You don't have the vision you used to have. You don't have the stamina you used to have and you hear work, work. We need to work. And here your God is saying, I love you. And it's not because of your work. I love you because of Jesus. And even when you can't work for me, even when you can't do all these things that you used to do, that you want to do, you need to know that my love for you is secure in Christ alone. Apart from the working. And God uses a famine of all things to teach them that. What wall? What's going on with you? I think that's really good news. That inside of this church, there are a lot of people who work, but we will hit hard times when our marriages are on the rocks. When our finances are unstable, when we lose our jobs and you need to hear me tell you that your dignity is not tied to what you contribute. God loves you apart from anything else that you can do, because he is pleased with the finished work of his son. The famine starts to unpack this. It exposes that this is who our God is like. But that's not all. Right. I think that the famine exposes the sin in the community. Now, stay with me, because this is kind of a theology of, of famines. Right. So here's what I think. I think there are two sides. There's a side A and a side B. And on the side A, we can definitively say that God is showing us something about himself in famines. And you see it in Genesis when he sends uh, the famine and he makes Jacob and all of his people go down to Israel. I mean, to Egypt to get food. He's keeping his promise to Abraham that I will call you out. You will go there. You will go and die. But your lineage will go into Egypt. They will stay there for year, 400 years, but I will call them out. So when God sends this famine, guess what? He's advancing. He's advancing his own agenda. He is showing them I can send you into Egypt and I will bring you out of Egypt. I will not turn my back on you. God set them, sent them in there to show them his miraculous power, to show him his mighty arm and his outstretched hand. He did that to glorify himself. But there's another side to that, right? He's exposing the sins of Jacob's sons through the famine. You remember what they did? They hated Joseph. And so they sold him and they went back to their dad. Hey, this is what happened. This is what happened. And so for years, they're thinking he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. And God says, nope, you're going to find out he's not dead. And I'm going to send a famine and it's going to sift your lying out. All of a sudden, when you go to get this food from Egypt, guess who you're going to run into? The same person you betrayed several years ago. In other words, it's not an either or. God is doing them both. He's advancing his agenda and he's using it to show there is sin in this family. That's what's happening in our text. God is screaming, I love my people apart from the work they do. But there's some sin in the camp. Now, when we read Nehemiah 3 and 4, we tend to think that they were unified. They were on the same page, man and woman and priest and layperson. And this perfumer and this metallurgist, like they were all dividing this big old wall up and doing the work together. It reads as if they were unified, on task, on mission together. And then the famine comes and it says, wait a minute. It's not what it appears from the outside. See, it's one thing to have to sell your children. It's one thing to have to mortgage your fields. It's one thing to pay extraordinary interest. It's a whole nother thing when you're paying this to your own people. That's the sin in the camp. So look, look at it. Look at verse one. The great outcry of the people and their wives against who? Who was their cry against? Yeah, I can talk about who is it against? The Jewish brothers, right? Look at verse five. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. This one flesh language its, it's intimate. And what they're saying is this is my child. And now my child has become their child. I mean, they're saying that, that my own brothers of the flesh have taken my children. Look at verse seven. I took counsel and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. You are exacting interest each from his brother. Look at verse seven. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. Nehemiah is like, what are you doing? We've been released from Babylon. We've been released from Susa. We've been sent back to our own land freely. And you, in turn, go back and sell your own brothers to the pagans around us. And we bought them back and you do it again that this is not the enemy outside of the camp that's treating them this way. This is their own flesh and blood, the covenant community that they are a part of. And that explains what Nehemiah says in verse six. When I heard this, I was very angry. Don't you know you can't own people? Don't you know that you can't charge them interest upon interest? Don't you know that they're made in the image of God? Don't you know that it's not just about profit, that you got real people made in the image of God and you are selling them as slaves? That's why he says in verse nine, this thing that you are doing, he says, it's not good. And this is not the first time Nehemiah has used that word good. He came to Jerusalem to do the good work that God had sent him. That there was a man named Tobiah who meant Yahweh is good, but he was a snake. And what Nehemiah is saying, you guys in the covenant community, you are acting like our very enemies. Now, why would he make this case against them? Like why would he, what's his standard? It's the passage that Zach read that when you read the Bible, God often told his people when famines were coming through dreams. And when you read Leviticus, God made provisions even for hard times. And you know what he says in Leviticus 25? He says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself You shall support him as a sojourner in your midst. You shall not lend him money at interest. If your brother becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not make him a slave. He shall be a hired worker to you. And in the year of Jubilee, he shall be freed. He and his children that when you go back and look at Leviticus 25, the entire spirit of that chapter is you can't buy people. You can't sell people that when your brothers and sisters are in bondage and can't get out of debt, you as your fellow brother, you come to their rescue. And if they're in bondage, debt bondage for year after year on the 50th year, you have to let them go. That God had designed it in the fabric of the community for when famines come and times get tough, the people turn to the covenant community for help. And so, it, in this passage, here's what I think God's doing. You could pray for God send more rain, send more rain, send more crops. And God has said, I'm not answering that. The answer to your prayer is that you stop being greedy. The answer to your prayer in the time of the famine is the people with more learn to live on less. The answer to the famine is that the answer is right there in the covenant community. I have built you to love one another, not just work together. And that is what God is doing. In the famine, the poor inside of the same covenant community the needy inside the same covenant community. We have each other as family. Committed to one another, caring for one another, that this is God's divine design. How do you get there? How how, how did they get there? I think fear is real. I mean, you tell me that I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to think twice about helping you, right? You tell me that my whole stock portfolio, I just lost 50 percent. I'm going to have to think twice about how being generous. And so I don't want to dehumanize them. I want to understand that like, hey, I get it. I get it that when times get hard, how we have this tendency to want to self-protect, that we don't want to share. We don't want to be generous, right? So I get it. It's fear. It's indifference. It's this commitment to my own lot, my own life. And they have no clue the type of community God is calling them to be. I don't want you to just work for me. I don't just want you to worship together. I want you to love one another. Deep, profound, sacrificial, costly, tender, compassionate love for one another. And God is using this famine to give them a barometer of where they stand. Let's see how you act when hard times come. Will you rally or will you retreat? Let's see what happens when hard times come. Will you be present? Will you be generous? Will you be kind? God is saying that, that yes, there's an enemy out there we're fighting against. But there is another enemy right here inside the church, inside the covenant community that can destroy it and say lack of love. There's a man named Tom and he does autopsies, which means that he determines the causes of death. His most recent his most recent 14 autopsies showed that the victims all had a similar cause of death. And here's the irony. There were 14 deaths, different cities, different ages, same causes. And this guy named Tom does not autopsy people. He does autopsies on churches. And to his surprise, one of the causes of death of the church is mass selfishness that every single church he autopsied suffered from some degree of members who move their focus from others to themselves. And he goes on to say, when a church moves in that direction, it is headed for decline, it is headed for death. A church cannot survive long-term where members are focused on themselves, self-serving, self-giving, self-entitled. And that's from Tom Rainer's book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And so I think it just comes to us by way of a warning just what can harm this body it isn't just a scandal of the pastors right what can harm this body it isn't just someone who maybe teaches something that's not true what can harm this body it isn't just if we stop thinking about the world and our community what can harm this body is if we don't love each other that our Lack of love can hurt those in need. Our lack of concern can hurt those in need, especially when we proclaim to be a welcoming community. And so I think as a church, I think we, by and large, we do a pretty good job at this, but I think the word of God, we can't read it from the postures that, hey, I get everything right. I think we have to read it and have it sort of work on us and expose us. If there's a need in the church, do you pray for that person? If someone is sick, do you send a meal? If there's a need that comes out through the email group, do you take the time and read it and think about the person? Is there another person's burdens that you're bearing inside of this church Other than your own. I think those are really fair questions to put upon us all. When we read a passage like this, we might not charge someone interest and make profit. We might not take their children, but we can close our eyes to those in need. The famine, hardship, it's exposing what's happening in the covenant community. And here's the last point. And this seems so counterintuitive that the famine actually provides an opportunity for them to strengthen and deepen their community. You see, when I when I read this, I'm thinking there is no way they recover. How can how can they recover when you own my daughter? How can I recover when you take my land? How can I recover when you got 10 fields and I have nothing? How can I ever look at you the same? And here is a beautiful point about the gospel is the covenant community can recover. And that's exactly what you see happening. This famine is setting the table to restore and to actually strengthen community. This doesn't work anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. You cross me, you cross my kids, you cross my money, we're done, right? Except for in the church. You can hurt me. You can hurt my money, you can hurt my children. And we can still have fellowship. And that's exactly what happens. Look at what happens. What do you do when there is sin in the camp? Sin has to be repented of, right? It's not just acknowledge, it has to be repented of, and that's what you see happening in this community. What is building this community? It's repentance and faith. It's repentance and forgiveness. Now look at it, look at what Nehemiah says in verse eight, and they were silent after being confronted. They could not say a word, they were speechless, And then look at verse 10, let us abandon exacting interests. Let us return to them this very day, their fields and vineyards and orchids and houses and money and grain and wine and oil. Look at verse 12, we will restore these things and require nothing else from them. Look at what Nehemiah does. He calls the priest and does this covenant acting ceremony where he shakes his garment and says that any man who does not keep his covenant, this promise will be shaken out of the community of God's people. You see what's happening? That those who had treated them with disdain, those who had sinned against them are the ones now repenting and restoring. They're acknowledging what they did was wrong and they're making things right. What about the poor who have been saying against that? It, it's their posture. I have to look you in the eyes and I have to forgive you. You've hurt me. You betrayed me. But I have to forgive you. That both camps are having to do something very unnatural. I say this because I'm sure that if you stay in this church long enough, we will sin against each other. That you will be in the hospital and no one will visit. That you will be sick and you might not get a meal that there, I'm positive that in this room right now, there are people who fall through the cracks. And one of the best ways that we as a body can love you is by owning our sin. I didn't come and see you. I didn't pray for you like I should have. I didn't give. And the other persons who've been sinned against. It's upon us to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Now, where in the world does this type of power? Where does it come from? Where does this come from? What is the power to restore? What is the power to not worship money and to not be afraid of tomorrow? What is this power to give when we see a person? Where does that come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from what John says in 1 John 3, 17. I want to read it really clearly. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how can God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. He does not say love the world. He says if anyone sees his brother or sister in need, your brother and you have the goods of the world, and you close your heart and choose not to, he said, let us not love like that. Now here's the thing, what's the verse before that? By this we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You hear what John is saying, we cannot do this, we cannot hold loosely to the things of the world, whether it be our time, our talent, our treasures, or our money, we can't hold loosely to that unless we realize that Jesus has held loosely to his own life. That it was him who laid down his life. It was him who was rich, who for our sake became poor, that we might become rich. It was him expressing this relentless, selfless love Of God to us that reached down to us in our poverty and it rescued us and John is saying the way that we reciprocate that love is by loving people the same way the power to love one another is only found in the cross of Christ this is not try harder This is go deeper into your Savior's love. And there you will find the one who became poor for you to buy you back and to save you. And he has engrafted us into a family, a community where this is how we love now. Where's the power to forgive when we've been wrong? That too is in the cross of Christ. He has forgiven all of our sins. He has forgiven all of our debts. And so if a brother or sister sins against us, forgive as you've been forgiven. That's my prayer. Is <coughs> that suffering and hardship in this community would actually be used to show us. God's love to reveal where we are on that map of our depth of love for one another, but to also set the table where if I've wronged you, I can come to you as a sister or a brother and repent and you can extend grace and forgiveness and our relationship can be deepened and strengthened because now we're going the way of the cross. We're not just working together and worshiping together. We're loving, real, grimy, gritty, hard, painful, sacrificial love. Grace can grow in the winter. God's people can be strengthened in hardship. I love how this ends, I'm gonna end it right here. Look at what happened at the end of verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. What a beautiful picture. At the end of all of this, the people said, Amen. You sinned against me. I forgive you. I've extorted you. I give it back. And we all say amen together and we move forward, not just workers, but fellow lovers of each other. That's my hope and prayer for our church, that we would love this way, even in hard times. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing love, what an amazing picture of your desire and design for your church that we would make room for one another's faults and sins against us. That we would be generous, that if there are those amongst us who are in need, that this would be a safe place to have needs met. Father, I pray that you will protect us as you have been doing from turning away from one another. I pray for those in the fringes in this congregation who thought that the church is just about a place to worship and a place to serve. It's a place to know and to be known and to cry with people and to share with people. I pray that they would feel welcomed and invited into this fellowship. Would you do this for your glory and for your honor and for Christ's sake? Amen.